until the present time, the kingdom of heaven has endured violent assault and violent men seize it by force. As a precious prize, a share in the heavenly kingdom is sought with most ardent zeal and intense exertion. Those are some pretty powerful words. Father, help us to grasp these words and the significance of them in our own lives. We thank you, Lord, for how you've spoken to us throughout this series. And I pray, Lord, that as we close it out today, that you would drive this point home with us today. That the kingdom of God has always suffered violent attack. And for that reason, the violent must take it by force with great exertion. And I pray that we would not grow weary in doing well, but we would reap because we faint not. And we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said amen and amen. Bless the Lord. Give the Lord praise again in his house. And Amen. And before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and tell him you love him in Jesus' mighty name. Bless the Lord. Hey, if you're just joining us for the very first time here today, we have been working through a series the last few weeks that we're actually going to be finishing this morning entitled The Struggle. And the big idea, uh, the big thought that we have been trying to unpack each week in this series is that salvation is worth the struggle. Would you say that with me? Salvation is worth the struggle. We have come to believe as followers of Jesus Christ that the salvation we have found in Jesus Christ is worth the struggles that we experience in this life. And I've said this over the last couple of weeks and I want to reiterate it again as we close this series out that that is something as a Christ follower you need to settle in your heart sooner than later. That is something that you need to resolve right now. It's something that you need to come to terms with. Uh, You need to resign yourself to the fact that if you are going to live godly as revealed in Christ Jesus, if you are going to please the Lord in all that you do, if you are going to walk in this world with a biblical worldview, which is to say that you're going to view life through the lens of the teachings of Jesus Christ and those who expounded upon the teachings of Jesus Christ giving us the New Testament, then you are going to suffer. To one degree or another, you are going to suffer. You're going to have persecution. There are going to be trials. There are going to be struggles. There are going to be difficulties. There are going to be seasons of great testing in your faith. And you just need to resign yourself to that. Um, and, and it's a hard thing for us to really grasp because we just think that if we serve the Lord, everything's going to get easy, but it's not. When you serve the Lord, you are going to follow Him wherever He leads you. And as a result of following Him, you are going to walk against the culture. You're going to cut across the grain. You are going to spit into the wind. You are going to swim upstream. There is going to be resistance. And we're not talking about the general struggles that all men and women experience because as we said last week, it rains on the just and on the unjust. 
And so there are just struggles that are common to all men and women. But we're talking specifically about the struggles and the difficulties that we experience as a result of putting our faith in Christ. Because you follow Christ, you're going to find yourself in great times of opposition because you are going to follow Him wherever He leads you and that is going to put you in tensions with family and with friends and in your marriage and at work because you have decided to follow Jesus Christ. You are compelled to do things that the world will mock you for. You're going to be compelled to restrain from things that the world is going to mock you for. And you have to just resign yourself. This is what's going to happen if I'm going to live godly in Christ Jesus, my Lord and my Savior. Jesus put it this way, that the kingdom of heaven, from the moment it began to be preached in this earth, has always suffered violent attack. It's always been oppressed. It's always been uh, resisted. It has always suffered pushback. It has always gone through that difficulty. And I just want to make this clear if you don't already know it. That doesn't mean that the kingdom of God can be defeated because Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it's not like this war trying to figure out who's going to win in the end. No, we win. We've already won through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's just to say that men and women violently oppose the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's a a kingdom of light and it exposes and it reveals and it uncovers. And men and women love the darkness and the deeds that they commit in the darkness and so they resist violently the truth of the kingdom of Almighty God. And Jesus said it's for that reason that only those with a violent and forceful attitude and mindset are going to push through that resistance to lay hold of the kingdom of Almighty God. What he's saying is, is that it is with great difficulty that men and women push through and enter into the kingdom of Almighty God. Now, what is really interesting, and we've said this every week, is that about 30 years after Jesus said those words, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, and probably the most familiar of the disciples of Jesus Christ, found himself in a very unique position where he could draw from his experiences with Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ that he had heard to write a letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage Christians at that time who were right on the verge of severe, severe persecution. He wrote this letter we know as 1 Peter, late 64 AD, which means that at the time he is writing it, the church is right on the brink of persecution and possibly they were even in the early stages of persecution. So he is writing to Christians who are scared, who are absolutely confused, who just do not understand why God is allowing them to go through this because this is not what they signed up for. They never saw it coming. They just came to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. No one ever said that they might have to die for their faith in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, they're staring this down. And for that reason, many of them have already bailed on the faith. Some are even now considering to bail on their faith. 
So the Holy Spirit stirs up Peter and says, you need to write a letter to actually encourage them to remain in this faith regardless to how difficult things may be. And so he writes this incredible letter, and we don't have time to go through the whole letter in this series, but I've drawn your attention to a few verses. And the first verse that we looked at was in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 18, where he's quoting Proverbs 11 and verse 31, and says, Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? If the righteous one is scarcely saved or is barely saved, one translation says that they are saved with difficulty. Another translation says that it is hard for the righteous to be saved. Any way that you interpret it, what he's simply saying is, is that it is with great difficulty that men and women are saved. And I want to remind you, in no way, shape, or form is Peter bringing an indictment against God and his ability to save us. Because God is mighty to save. Amen? He has all the power to save you. He has all of the mercy to save you. And he has the sacrifice to save you. So it's not difficult for God to save any of us. That's the easy part. What he's bringing is an indictment against us. What he's saying is, is that considering the pressure that Christians are always experiencing for their faith in Jesus Christ, that it is with great difficulty they enter in to the kingdom of heaven. They are barely saved because it takes every um, every decision in your life, it takes every bit of strength within your being to press through that. Literally what he is saying is that because the struggles and the hardships that come upon believers for their faith in Jesus Christ are so intense, it is with great difficulty that they enter in to the kingdom of Almighty God. And he says, for that reason, many are going to fall away before the end and many others are going to choose not to even begin the journey. Because they're going to look at this and they're going to say, no, 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 I am not willing to part with that. I'm not willing to go through this. And they are just going to say, I'm going to look for a broad, accommodating path. But Jesus said, be careful of that easy path. Because that easy path actually leads to destruction. Straight and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. Now that is a very sobering portion of Scripture. And so Peter, recognizing how dire that situation really was at that time, he says, let me offer you some, uh, some strategy. Let me offer you some plan, something by which you can prepare your heart for the days that lie ahead. Because, folks, dangerous days are ahead. And I don't know what that's going to look like in the United States of America, but I do know that Jesus has promised us things are going to get much worse the closer we get to the coming of the Lord. And so Peter speaks 2,000 years ago to us today and says, I want to give you strategies. I want to give you plans. I want to give you something that will help you prepare your heart for the difficult days that are coming because it's not a matter of if they're coming. It's only a matter of when they strike. And they will strike at various times in your life. And so he begins in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 1, with these words. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, and that's as far as we got last week, 
And what jumps off the page as you read that is that rather than offering them comfort, which you would think that they would need, instead he offers them focus. Christ who suffered for us in the flesh. He says, for a moment, I need you to get your eyes off what you're going through, and I want you to get your eyes on what he went through for you. What Peter is saying to them is, the reason you're stumbling, the reason you're confused, the reason that you're really having a hard time embracing what's going on in your life is that you're looking at your sufferings apart from the context of Christ and his sufferings. Whenever you try to make sense of what you're going through apart what Jesus went through, then you always come into a place of confusion. He says you're always to look at what you're enduring through the context of what he endured for you. Jesus suffered in the flesh. And if you were here last week, we talked about how that means that never once did Jesus lean into his divine power to ease the pain that he experienced in the garden and leading up to the cross and even in those hours hanging upon the cross. Instead, he went through it the same way that you and I have to go through our trials. And that is leaning upon the Holy Spirit of God and trusting in our Father who said, I will never leave you and will never forsake you. What Jesus was saying there is that your salvation came through my suffering and that salvation is worth all the struggles that you experience in life. You know, I was thinking about it this week. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room on that same night in John chapter 15 and verse 20, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus says, listen, in a very short amount of time, I'm going to entrust this entire ministry into your hands. And I'm leaving. And he says, when you go out, you're going to be representing me. You are going to be teaching them all the things that I taught you. You're going to instruct them and all that I instructed you to do. You're going to make disciples of all the peoples of the world. And he said, but you need to remember something. If they hated me... They're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they came after me, they're going to come after you. And I want you to always remember that so that when it comes, instead of focusing on what you're going through, you'll focus on what I went through to give you salvation, lest you grow weary and discouraged in your own soul. And all that I'm going to say here as I close up this review very quickly is never lose your focus. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, never lose your focus. Don't get distracted. When you're being tested, when you're being tried, instead of looking at what you're going through, look at what Jesus went through upon the cross. And remember above all, salvation is worth the struggle. In Jesus' mighty name. Okay, now, let's move on. We're going to close this out today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 1 again. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, listen to this, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You know, those, those words are so powerful. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. 
A couple of weeks ago, some of you know I met a group of pastors down in Fairfax, Virginia, right outside of D.C. And one night I was in my hotel room and I was just meditating on that verse. And as I did, there were two thoughts that I immediately had as I read it. The first thought is, this is a battle. And the second thought is that the battle is the mind. Make sure that you understand from what he said right there, this is a battle. Make no mistake about it. And the battle is for the mind. Paul minced absolutely no words. This Christian life is a battle and it must be treated as one. You can never allow yourself to forget that we are in a war, that we are in a struggle, that we are in a conflict. He says, arm yourselves. That is a military term. I probably didn't need to tell you that. And he's speaking of arming yourself. He's talking about soldiers who take up weapons for a fight that is ahead. And when he said arm yourself, he's saying you're in a fight, you're in a war, and there are weapons that you need in order to overcome in this battle for the glory and the honor of God. You know, many of you know that the New Testament is filled with militaristic language that is meant to remind us that we are involved in a conflict, that we are involved in a battle, and we must always keep that straight in our mind. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse number 10. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes and strategies of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Paul says, I want you to remember that on a daily basis, your struggle is not with flesh and blood, no matter what you might think. Your struggle is actually with unseen spiritual foes. And for that reason, your weapons cannot be of this world. Instead, you need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might and put on the whole armor of God so that in that day you'll stand in Jesus' mighty name. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, he said, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. He reminds us here that we are soldiers in the army of Almighty God and as such, we cannot allow ourselves to become entangled with civilian life in this world. We've got to attend to the business of Almighty God because we are in a war. Later in that same letter, as Paul is ready to say goodbye for the last time, this will be the last letter that he ever writes, he says, as I consider my life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And that's just a sampling of the many scriptures in the New Testament that deal with militaristic terms. The language was purposely for, chosen by the Holy Spirit to convey the idea that living for Christ is a battle, that it is a war, that it is a conflict, and that it is not for the faint of heart, that it is costly. That's why Jesus said, the violent take it by force. He says, there is nothing easy about it. The easy part was saving you. 
But when you consider all that is coming against the saint until he arrives in heaven's shore one day, it is barely that men and women make it into the kingdom of Almighty God. He says, you've got to know that this is a war. And you've got to treat it like a war. You've got to treat it like a battle. It is not a game. And I fear today that there are too many Christians that are treating their walk with God as a game rather than a war. And there is a vast difference between the two. Some of you are in a war and you're playing like a game. And I'm going to tell you, you can't live like that if you're going to make it all the way. You've got to see it for what it really is. You know, when you treat it like a game, you take it in a whole different direction. I mean, what happens at the end of a bad season when a team does not make the playoffs? The fan base say, well, there's always next season. At the end of a bad game, the team might say, well, you know, we played bad today, but there's always tomorrow. We've always got another game. There's always another series. And no one really takes it that seriously because at the end of the day, it is a game. I mean, we may take it seriously for the three or four hours that we're watching it, but when it's over, it's over. It's a game. No life is hinging upon the outcome of that game. No one's going to live because they won. No one's going to die because they lost. It's just a game. And so you can have that approach. There's always next season. There's always another game. There's always another series. But folks, you can't think of your faith as a game because there is no tomorrow. Today is the acceptable day of the Lord. And there's many of us that we trip and we fall and we say, well, you know what? There's always tomorrow. There's always next month. There's always next year. You know, there's always another season in my life. Maybe I just don't want God in my life right now. But there's always another season. And you're treating it like you've always got a guarantee of the future. Folks, there's not one of us that have a guarantee of tomorrow. This is not a game. It is a war. There are lives that are really at stake. There is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun. There is a real eternity. And we have got to start taking it serious. We are in a war. And we need to fight like we've never fought before. In Jesus' mighty name. It's a battle. And the battle is for the mind. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, the battle is for your mind. He says, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Can I just tell you, the strategy of the enemy is he wants to get into your head. This is psychological warfare. This is all that he has ever wanted to do is to get into your head because he knows that if he can twist your mind and your way of thinking, then he can manipulate you and he can cause you to bail on your faith. Can I just going to bunny trail here for a moment, okay? The enemy is not concerned about your car. The enemy is not concerned of where you work. The enemy is not concerned of how big or how small your house is. He is not concerned about your health. He's not concerned about your family. He's not concerned about your children, your marriage. He's not into that at all. He's after one thing, and that is your mind. That's all that he's interested in. And the reason I say that is because Christians still today will walk around and just say, man, the devil is attacking this, and he's attacking that. And the problem is, is that if you think it's the devil that's attacking everything, you will never take personal responsibility for your life. 
Listen, I'm just going to pastor you right now. This is counseling. Maybe some of you will just uh, cancel your next uh, counseling uh, uh, time with me after this. Or maybe you'll be able to after this. Because here's what happens. People come to me and they'll say, Pastor Kerr, listen, the enemy is attacking my marriage. Really? Well, let me ask you. Do you love your wife like Christ loves the church? No. Do you respect your husband? Like you respect Jesus. No. And I said, well then, let me tell you, the devil is not attacking your marriage. You are sabotaging your marriage by your own hand. I love that weak amen there today. We, we do, we blame it on the devil and, and God's saying, it's not the devil's fault. You're not doing what I told you to do. We say, oh, the devil's attacking my finances. Really? How much money do you make? How much money do you spend? That isn't the devil. That is your selfish behavior. You see, if you keep blaming the devil for every bad thing that happens, then you'll never mature, you'll never grow up in the faith, and you'll never take personal responsibility for your own actions. You see, I've I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and the one thing that I realize is that the enemy isn't always the one that is behind the assault. But he is always the one who stands in the shadow of the assault and says, God failed you. He's not the one that causes you pain, always. But he is the one who exploits your pain, who exploits your sorrow, who exploits your confusion, who exploits your every hurt and tells you, God failed you. And now you're justified in taking that and going for this. See, that's how the enemy works. And that's why the enemy takes advantage of us all the time is because we're fighting him as if he's the cause of all the sorrow and all the pain in my life when he's not. He just loves insinuating. I'm looking for a place where I can do it. He just, he sneaks around. All that he does, he's just that slinky figure that hides behind things. And he just looks And he waits, and he says, you know what? Did God really say that? That's all he says. That's all the guy does. For all that we make of the devil, all that he does, it says, you know, if your wife respected you the way you need to be respected, then you could be a better husband. And you know, if your husband would love you like Christ loves the church, then your eyes wouldn't stray. You're all right in having that affair. And he's the one that that stands back and says, you know, if God really loved you, why did he allow your child to get sick? Or your daughter or your son to walk away from the faith? And he insinuates those things so that you and I will believe that God failed us because the only thing that he is concerned about is seeing you eternally separated from Almighty God. He doesn't care about your health, but he will exploit sickness to make you believe that God failed you somehow. 
And that's how the enemy works. He just tears us down. It's all psychological warfare. And that's why Paul came in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 3 and said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What he's saying there is that the enemy, again, he stands in those shadowy areas just waiting for the right opportunity and then he lifts up an argument against the knowledge of God. He argues against the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the power of God. He lifts up that argument. And if you and I at that moment do not take that thought captive and we begin to entertain it, It's not long before that entertained thought begins to take a strong hold on our thinking. It takes a strong hold on our thinking. And before long, we get so twisted in our mind that we can't hear the truth. And we can't see the truth because we are so self-deceived. And that's why Paul said, but thanks be to God that the weapons of our warfare are not of this world, but they're mighty with God to tear down those strongholds so you can bring every thought into captivity and you can live a life of obedience to the glory and the honor of Almighty God. You know... A lot of people might say, why does he use psychological warfare? Quite frankly, it's all the old boy's got now. He's got nothing else but psychological warfare. Colossians chapter number 2 and verse number 15 says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, demonic powers, triumphing over them in it. It says that from the cross, Jesus systematically disarmed all of Satan's power and all of Satan's legion. In 1 John chapter 3 it says, For this purpose the Son of God was revealed that He might destroy the works of the devil. When Jesus said it is finished, Satan was finished. He was disarmed. He has nothing left anymore. And every once in a while I still hear Christians that say, and I laugh when they say it, we got to defeat the devil. Are you kidding me? How do you defeat him a second time? He's already been defeated. He's been defeated for 2,000 years. All the old boy can do is tell you a lie and hope that you're gullible enough to believe it. That's why he says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. In Jesus' mighty name. He can't hop on you and give you cancer and give you pain. He sits there and waits for the trials of life and then says, God's failed you. And that's why Peter says we're to arm ourselves with the same mind as Christ. Isn't it amazing? That for all that we make of spiritual warfare, and we talk about pleading the blood and binding and loosing devils, Peter says, calm down. It really comes down to this, your mind. And you need to arm yourself with the same mind that Jesus Christ had. If you have that mind, the enemy can't touch you. Just that. Satan had nothing on Jesus on the night that he was betrayed because Jesus had the proper mindset. And if you and I will have the proper mindset, the enemy can't touch us. Can't touch us. And it's not that we say, bring it on. I would never say that. 
But when it does come, I will say, greater is the Lord in me than you who are in this world. And somehow, God is going to see me through this. In Jesus' name. So what is his mind? I mean, that's the question. What was the mind of Christ? Aren't you glad when the word of God just comes together like this? Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5. We'll see how you're shouting now. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So there it is. This is the mind of Christ. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now many of you know that's a poor translation. It really should say, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. Jesus would never have been on Facebook. Never been on Instagram. Now, I'm not saying you should go cancel it all. But Jesus wouldn't because he made himself of no reputation. He didn't draw any attention to himself purposely. He said he took on the form of a bondservant and he came in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Think about what that verse is saying. Think of the implications of it. Jesus was and is today God. But while he was on this earth, never once did he see his identity as God something to be grasped. So there was never a time when Jesus went and said, Hey, do you know who I am? Never once did Jesus flaunt his divinity. Never once did he do anything to draw people to himself by saying, I am God. He, never. Instead, the Bible says, that he made himself of no reputation. It's interesting that word reputation, it means one thing to us, but it wasn't really what it meant to the Greeks in that day. It actually meant he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, you've got to be careful with that because you could get the idea that it means it emptied his divinity. He did not empty himself of his divinity. As I said to you last week, he was always 100% God, 100% man at the same time. There was never a moment when he was more God, less human, more human, less God. Never. He was always 100% man, 100% God at the exact same time. Okay, When it says that he emptied himself, when he made himself of no reputation, it is saying that never once did he use his divinity for himself. Never once did he tap into his divinity to fulfill a selfish desire. Any time that he tapped his divinity, it was always to bring glory to the Father and to benefit his fellow man. He never used it selfishly or self-centeredly. He never took his identity to draw attention to himself, to make something of himself. He always used it to serve the Lord and to be a benefit to others. Always. The Bible says that he was a bondservant. Bondservant is a sanitized way of saying a slave. Jesus became a slave to God and to his fellow man. 
Think about that. Last week I told you that never once during his suffering did Jesus lean into his divinity to lessen the pain. He never used it selfishly. Jesus never used his divine nature selfishly. He never used his divine character, his divine attributes, his divine status for himself, but rather he became a servant and humbled himself continually before God, even humbling himself to death upon a cross by the hands of men he created. And Peter says, arm yourself with the same mind. That you never see yourself as living for yourself, but you always see yourself as a servant to God and to your fellow man. Oh, Pastor, can't we get back to that spiritual armor? Like, that's just so much more exciting. You mean that the only way I can overcome the enemy is by being a servant? Yes. Think about it. If you empty yourself of the need to satisfy yourself, of the need to gratify yourself, then the enemy has nothing on you. If you possess the same mind, the same attitude, the same intention, the same thought that Jesus did, and you see yourself as a servant, not as one to be served, but rather one who has come to serve, then the enemy cannot touch you. He cannot derail your faith. I mean, think about it. He draws us away because of our own desires. The Bible makes it very clear that when we are tempted, we are tempted because of our own desires. It's our own desires that draw us off the trail, that drive us off the, the rails. But when you become a servant, when you say, I don't live for myself, it's not about my happiness, it's not about my joy, it's not about my satisfaction, it's about the glory of God who created me, and it's about being a servant to everyone else, Satan can't touch you. Nothing. In the struggles of life, in the testings, in the tribulations that come, if you're a servant of the Lord and His will, if you're a servant to others, then you can say, Lord, lead me on. And if, lead, if following you means that I have to suffer, I may not like it, but I'm okay. Because it's not about my comfort. It's not about what satisfies me and what gratifies me. I live for the glory of the Father and for the building up of my fellow man. And Satan says, I can't touch you. Because the only way I can grab a hold of anything is if you live for yourself. You know, earlier in this same letter, Peter said this. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we don't talk like that anymore. And probably if you went up to somebody and say, hey, gird up the loins of your mind, they'd slap you. I mean, this, let's be honest, it, sounds, it almost sounds twisted, you know, when you hear that. Gird up the loins of your mind. What on earth is he saying? But that was a very common phrase in that time. You remember back in those days, they would wear what amounted to togas, and in that 
temperature in that environment. It was cool. It breathed well. And that's how everyone dressed. But if you had to run anywhere, that would be a challenge. You'd trip over your toga. And so they would say, hey, you need to gird up your loins and run. And what they meant is to reach between your legs, grab a hold of your toga, pull it through your legs, and then tuck it into your belt. You're essentially turning your toga into a pair of pants or at least running shorts, and you could run without any hindrance. And so when he says, gird up the loins of your mind, he's saying, I want you to gather up all of your loose, undisciplined thinking. I want you to gather up all those thoughts of why did God abandon me? And why did God allow this to happen? And what if I went out and did my own thing? He says, I want you to gather up all of this loose thinking that is causing you to trip and I want you to gather it together and tuck it into the belt of truth. And I want you to become single-minded and purposeful in your thought process. I want your mind to think upon one thing. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. I am a servant of the Lord. I'm a servant of my fellow man. And I don't care what comes my way today. I'm not living for myself, but for the glory of my God. You know, the Bible says so much about what we meditate on. In fact, Philippians chapter 4, verse number 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, morality, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The Bible says, be careful what you dwell on. Be careful what you set your eyes before. Be careful what you listen to because they're gateways into your mind. Meditate on the good things of God because you're in a battle, you're in a war, and lives are at stake. And your mind needs to remember that you are a servant of God, that the world does not exist and God does not exist to serve you. You exist to serve God and your fellow man. Preparing for spiritual battle is preparing your mind. I've often thought about this. And I know we have some veterans here, and I think there might even be some of you that fought. And can you imagine how a soldier mentally prepares themselves for battle? Now, I'm not talking about war games. I'm not talking about training. How do they prepare themselves as they're boarding a plane, they're boarding a helicopter, they're boarding a ship, they're boarding a boat that they know is going to take them into harm's way. How do you mentally prepare yourself for that? I've just been, I've marveled through the years. How do you sit down and mentally prepare yourself to hit the beach, to hit that territory, and overcome every instinct in you to flight And now stand to fight. But folks, that's what we do every day as the children of God. We get in our faces before the Lord and say, Lord, when I leave this house today, I am going to be hit from 
every angle. I don't know where it's coming, but I know that through media, and I know that through television, and I know that through the movies that I watch, and I know that through friends, and I know that through family, and I know through a husband, I know through a wife, that it's going to come today, and everything in me is going to say, serve yourself, do it your way, make up your own mind, but I remember today that I am the servant of the Lord, and that is my objective, to please my Father, and no matter what hell comes my way, I'm not bowing. I'm living for the glory and for the honor of God. Now why is all of this important? Because Peter said in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. And therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers And above all, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. I think that's powerful. A powerful word. He says the reason this is so important, church, is because the end of all things is at hand. Now remember the audience that he's writing to. These are men and women that are about to be thrown into persecution. And not just mockery. Most of the people that are hearing this letter for the first time will die for their faith in Jesus Christ. This is lethal persecution. I told you a few weeks ago, some of them will be encased in wax and will turn into a human candle to light up Nero's garden. Some of the ones he's writing to will be crucified. Some of them will be beheaded. Some of them will be thrown to the lions and torn apart. And Peter comes in here and he says, but the end of all things is at hand. He's saying to them, look, for some of you, the end is literally at hand. Now for you and I, 2,000 years ago, the end of all things is at hand. Either that is going to come through the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which I'd be okay with that. (laughs) I don't know if anybody else is with me today. I I wouldn't mind Jesus coming very quickly, okay? Okay. Three of you are ready, evidently. (laughs) Um, But even if he's not talking about the last days, you do realize that the end of all things is still at hand because there's not one of us that are gaining any time. We're all losing time right now. The clock is ticking. Turn to your neighbor and tell them the clock is ticking. You know, isn't isn't it amazing that a newborn baby is losing time? They're born with the clock ticking. No one's gaining any time. You're losing time every second. And none of us are guaranteed of the next breath that we are going to take. And Peter says, you need to do this knowing that the time is near. Number one, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Can I just tell you right now, if you do not have an active prayer life, you're never going to make it in the days that lie ahead. Now, I'm not talking about, Lord, you know, I just need you to bless me today and strengthen me. No, no, no. I mean gut-wrenching prayers where you get alone with God and you say, Lord, if I do not receive a touch from heaven today, I am not going to make it. I need your touch. He says, be serious and watchful in your prayer. The word serious means calm. It means sound. It means stable. The word watchful means rational, controlled. It means sound thinking. 
speaking. It's talking about self-control. The word is actually directly uh, involved with drunkenness, speaking of sobriety. And he's applying it to prayer. And what he's saying there is that when we pray, we need to control ourselves. That we need to be rational. That we need to be controlled in our prayers. Understanding how difficult life will be. It's taking it seriously and saying, I do not even recognize how difficult the battle is. I need to pray so that I'm ready for all things. In Jesus' name. And you can't help, at least I can't. I can't help but think that as Peter is writing this down, he's remembering what happened to his life 30 years before it. Because remember, that's the context. That's why it's so cool to know the background of all of these. And you're just thinking as he's writing this down, that he's remembering 30 years before when he was in the garden with Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. Remember it? We read a little bit of it last week. In Matthew 26, he said to them, Jesus, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me to pray. And he went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to who? To Peter. What? You couldn't watch with me for just one hour? Watch and pray, Peter, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says, Peter, you have no idea how severe this moment is. You do not know what is at stake right now. All of mankind is is literally in the balance at this moment, and you're asleep. He says, listen, Peter, I know that it's not a lack of intention and a lot of, uh, and a lack of a good confession because you just told me a few minutes ago that you'll die for me before you have to deny me. I know that your spirit is willing, but you have no idea how weak your flesh is. And if you don't pray, if you do not take this seriously in this moment, you're going to enter into temptation. Pray. What's sad is you know he didn't. That as soon as Jesus went off, he went right back to sleep. Where most of the church is today. Sound asleep on the brink of disaster. And he went right back to sleep. And of course, when temptation came, he fell right into it. Because he didn't pray. Because he didn't seek the face of God. And now 30 years later, he's writing this letter and he's saying, listen, I know that none of you intend to bail on the Lord. And I know that you boldly confess your love for God, but I'm going to tell you because I've been there myself. Though your spirit is willing, your flesh is weaker than you could ever imagine. Pray and never stop because you're only going to make it by the power of Almighty God released to you in prayer in Jesus' mighty name. Folks, we need to pray like we've never prayed before. If it means we got to get up an hour earlier, then we got to go bed, uh, get up an hour earlier. If it means we have got to go to bed later, then we go to bed later. However you work it, but we have all got to pray and get serious about the hour that we are living in because nothing else will work. And then finally he says this, and we're going to close. Above all, He says, have fervent love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. 
Now, we love that. We, we love reading that and quoting that. But again, if you take it out of its context, you'll miss the depth of this. Remember who he's writing to. And if you remember who he's writing to, what he said right there could almost come across insensitive. Because he's saying to men and women who are persecuted, men and women who are going to lose their lives, men and women who are going to lose their children, men and women who are going to lose their parents, men and women who are going to be torn apart by lions. And he says to them, hey, as you go into this, Make sure you have fervent love. The word fervent there means stretched out. It's a love that never fails. It's a love that covers all. He says, have fervent love for one another because love will cover a multitude of sins. And you can just almost hear the persecuted church saying, is he saying what I think he's saying? Is he telling me that I have to love my enemies? Is he telling me that I've got to stretch out my love and cover the multitude of sin that's been committed against me and against my family? Where did he ever come up with an idea that i got to love my enemies? Oh, yeah. Jesus said that. And by the way, you do all realize that those of you who are saved are saved because God demonstrated his love towards you in that while you were an enemy. Christ died for you. What he was saying to them is, look, you guys are about to suffer. And I wish I could stop it. I wish I could keep it from happening. But it's going to happen. And it's going to be harder than you ever imagined. And you need to pray, but you also need to have fervent love. Because you're going to want to get bitter And you're going to want to get angry. And that bitterness will derail your faith. He said instead, have a multitude, have have fervent love that will cover a multitude of sin. Don't let bitterness get into your heart and derail your faith, but stand fast in Jesus' name. Now listen, folks, I wish there was some easy way to tell you this. But you're going to get hurt. You're going to be betrayed. Some of the people that are closest to you are going to hurt you. But Jesus says, let love prevail in your heart and love everyone for love will cover a multitude of sin. You pray for those that hurt you. You intercede for those that spitefully treat you. You pray for those that are attacking you. Let your love cover their sins against you. Because it'll protect your heart from becoming bitter and derailing your faith. And there's some of you even here today, you still are bitter. And you need to let love prevail. Let it cover a multitude. They'll get away with it. That's God's business, not mine. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I just forgive and I let God sort it all out. Because I am not going to derail my faith for the sake of vengeance. I'm not. Because salvation is worth the struggle. Please remember as we close this out, well, you can come. Peter is giving them a strategy. He's saying, it's coming. The hardship's coming. But I'm going to give you what you need to do to prepare your heart. First, 
Focus on the sufferings that Christ endured for you and not your own. Secondly, arm yourself with the same mind that Christ had. And that is a servant's attitude. Never look at your life as, I'm here to be served. Rather say, I'm here to serve. Pray with all seriousness. And then have fervent love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. The struggle is coming. But thank God, salvation is worth the struggle. And when we see him face to face, it will be worth it all. In Jesus' name. Can we just do this in closing today? Those of you that.